by order of the Peaky fucking blinders. <laughs> and I love Peaky Blinders, man. Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from the Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. My name is Dan Delamotte, and I am so excited to be joined by the actor, star of stage and screen, Wendell Pierce. Wendell, thank you for joining us for Off Book. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. This is great. We're happy that you're here. (laughs) And um, I want to kick off with you by asking you about growing up and growing up in New Orleans Mm -hmm. and whether performance was part of your childhood. Was it something that you enjoyed doing from an early age? Uh, Yes, I um, I started young. Actually, it was... I was in the fifth grade, so I guess uh, that was about 10 or 11. And I told my mother I didn't want to go to the summer camp that I would normally go to. I wanted to do something different. She said, well, you can't get a job. You're just 10 years old. And and they found a theater camp at the University of New Orleans. It was a husband and wife team who were in their graduate training program. And one taught theater and one taught film. And... uh, and I spent like six weeks there or whatever, and I had a great time. Went back to school in the sixth grade, and the woman called me, uh, got in touch with me, and said I've written. She had written a children's play, um, *Midsummer's Night Magic*. I was like, uh, a little plagiarizing there, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, and I went back and I did it at the University of New Orleans. Um, and I, you know, that was the bug then. And then I stopped in all during junior high school. For the next three or four years, I was playing football. I'm a big guy and running around pretty fast, all of that. So I was playing American football, um, tackling and throwing people around and having a ball. And uh, then I went to this great high school, and they came recruiting for the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. It was a new performing arts high school in the city. And uh, you went there half of the day. The other half of the, of the day, you went to your academic school. And uh, I was sitting in the back of the class, really just trying to not pay attention. And I'll never forget Elliot Keener. The teacher said, all of a sudden, you, you just rose up and you kept asking all of these questions, all of these questions. And it was like it was just he and I in the room after a certain point. You know, all the other kids were like, well, you know, obviously Wendell's interested in this. And I went to an open house, and then that was it. I said, oh, this is something I want to do. So I started uh, there when I was uh, 14. L.A. Keener uh, was the teacher that brought me to London for the first time 40 years ago. Oh, wow. And uh, unfortunately, he's deceased now. And uh, I was thinking about him the other night, saying I wish he could see my London debut. So it's thanks to him, would you say? Thanks to him. And when I came here, I realized, well, Noka is a great school. It trains you well. We didn't do plays. We were actually just doing scene work and uh, movement voice and text work. And then uh, I came to London, and i never forget, I saw Kate Nelligan and As You Like It at the RSC. I was like, wow, this is this the first time I saw Shakespeare really come alive like that. And... Um, and uh, then I came and saw Yule Brenner in The King and I <laughs> at the Palladium. And I was like, that's the longest curtain call. The curtain call was like a half an hour long. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Can't remember the play at all. Was, the curtain call was a half an hour long, I swear. And um, so I was hooked. And that was uh, my first trip to London. And I, uh, it took me 40 years, but I finally made my debut here. 
Oh, fantastic. Well, we're so glad that you've made your debut here. We're going to come on to your debut here slightly later on. Mm -hmm. But um, your parents, were they supportive of that? Um, Yes and no. Uh, Like all artists, there's that moment where you tell, if you're a young artist, you tell your parents, this is something that I want to do. And they go, oh, no, Dan, no, (laughs) really. Oh, don't you want to be a barrister? (laughs) Um, uh, So... My father, distinct. My mother was always very supportive. My father was always supportive too. And then one day he asked, I asked him to take me to a rehearsal or something, and he's like, "God damn it, I'm not taking you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Rehearsals and all that stuff. Why do you want to do that? I'm sending you to that public private school. He called it uh, private schools in, uh, in the United States are always seen as being better, you know." Um, and I was going to a very good public school called Benjamin Franklin High School for my academics. It's one of the top ten high schools in the country, national merit honors, and all. Definitely the best school in Louisiana. And uh, he was just like, "You have the perfect academic situation. Why would you ruin it by wanting to be an actor?" And I'll never forget when I made my Broadway debut at the opening night party. I said, "Dad, remember that time you said you never take me." So any more rehearsals or anything? He goes, yes. I said, I want you to remember tonight as much, you know. So uh, he reconciled it. You know, he's 94 now, and um, he's always asking me, did you get your quote? How was the production? How did the play go? You know, is it coming together? So wow. he's uh, he uh, he stuck to his guns, though. He always said, do what you want to do, but um, do it 100%. Commit. And while he wasn't interested in me being an actor, he never stopped me from doing it. He stuck to his, his principles of, I'm going to allow you to choose what you want to do, but I demand that you commit to it fully. So uh, I, while he gave me a hard time, he said, I'm not going to have, it's not my choice, it's your choice. I just don't have to participate in it. Now he came to everything that I did and was always supportive. Uh, so now he looks back and he looks forward to it. He was like, wish I could get to London. You know, it's a little difficult for him to come over, but I'm thinking about it. Well, do the West End debut, uh, West End transfer, which is very very I know. And um, that must have been such a special moment for both you and your father to for him to be there for your Broadway debut. Yes, and it was in a Carol Churchill play. Oh wow, which one? Serious Money, and um, it was in the World Trade Center, the party. So it's like uh, a strange amalgam of um, coincidences and uh, kismet. Uh, that I'm in London now, that I made my Broadway debut with a, a, a an acclaimed British uh, playwright, and, um, and we partied in the World Trade Center, which is now a site of hallowed ground of a horrific tragedy. And when was this, your Broadway debut? Uh, this was... Um, oh, now, Dan, you're getting into <laughs> numbers. It was early on. And a couple the of 90s. years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a couple of decades ago. It was in the 90s, early 90s, something like that. And... Just going back to New Orleans, for me, as a, as a Brit who's never been there, the, the mm-hmm. first thing I think of is jazz. Yes. Was that something in your life? Absolutely. Well, see, um, New Orleans is the northernmost Caribbean city. It is the last Bohemia. It is um, the city that care for God because nobody cares. It's the big easy baby. That's how we do it. Uh, it is the birthplace of jazz. Uh, I literally can take you to Congo Square and stand on the very spot where these captured Africans um, 
who found their creative freedom before their own personal freedoms. So on Sundays, uh, they would be let out of their shackles in this park or this area, Congo Square. Um, the Haitian Revolution had happened decades earlier, so it was actually an exchange of ideas of revolution and freedom and insurrection that was happening at the same time. But what was really happening was they played and danced the bambula. You know, that African six. And then you hear this brass music from your European captors. That's where they got the brass instruments from. And uh, in the greatest part of the American aesthetic, it was merged uh, and became jazz, the syncopation of Africa, the brass instruments of Europe put together in this situation where, like I said, these captured Africans found their cultural freedom uh, before their actual freedom. Um, but it is an imitation of the human voice and dialogue because you trade fours. Then Dan answers. Right? So that's what trading fours are, really, is the imitation of a dialogue between. And then it's the highest level of art. Because art is technical proficiency with the highest ability to express one's individualism. It's freedom within form. So you have to honor the form of the song. The chord changes, you know, from bar to bar to bar. You have to stay in that key. You have to stay in those chord changes. But you can play anything you want, man. You have a finite amount of notes but with an infinite amount of possibilities and combinations. So structure is honored, but at the same time, uninhibited individual expression is honored. And they both are happening at the same time. That is the greatest contribution to the human diaspora that uh, these African-Americans made right in New Orleans from my hometown. You speak about jazz very eloquently and very passionately. It sounds like mm -hmm. something which is really important to you. It is. It's. Uh, I have a whole bunch of friends who are jazz musicians. <laughs> That's one thing. I was hanging out with them mainly in New York. Uh, I grew up with them. I grew up with Winton and Branford Marsalis. They went to the New Orleans Center of Creative Arts. Terrence Blanchard, great jazz trumpet player, who's uh, who had an opera just open in St. Louis this week. Um, uh Donald Harrison, John Baptiste, who's on the uh, Late Show on CBS, he's the band leader there. Uh, Harry Connick Jr. I went to school with. He was <laughs> he was a little kid in khakis. I mean, I when I knew him, uh, he's a great jazz star now, um, an actor, which is kind of a movie star. Um, it was uh, um, so prevalent in everything we do in New Orleans. There's always music. It also taught me, it was connection to the community. Like I said, you know, understanding that this was, this music was created in a horrific time of slavery and, and, and people were dehumanized and the violence that was around it. All of the culture in New Orleans comes from something beautiful made out of something ugly. 
Jim Crow laws where black folks weren't allowed to get burial plots or insurance or anything. Um, uh, they were segregated from parks. You can only go to the park on Negro Day on Wednesday. If you were caught in a, in a public open space uh, <clears throat> any other day, you could be arrested uh, in Jim Crow. And so as insurance companies avoided our communities and redlined them, the term comes from literally putting a red line on the map around your this working class or poor black community and saying, don't sell them insurance, you know, or if you do sell them the highest premiumed insurance with the least benefits. So we had to pool our money. So if your mom takes sick, dad, we'll take care of you. If your dad dies, we're going to send him off nice. You as the family will be behind the coffin as we do a procession and you are the first line of mourners. We are the second line of mourners. So there's the dirge to the cemetery. And then you cut the body loose, as we call it. And then you celebrate on the way back. Fly away. That is a second line. That is a second line parade. That is the jazz funeral that you have become so accustomed to and have seen images of from New Orleans. But it came out of the necessity of associating pleasure club. Groups put together grassroots insurance so that we can take care of our community because we are under attack from the community around us. So that's how those traditions started. Very practical. You see the umbrellas and the handkerchiefs? Go to New Orleans on a July day and see what 100 degrees Fahrenheit feels like. You're like, oh, that's where the umbrella comes from, to shield you from the sun and to wipe yourself from the sweat with the handkerchiefs. Um, so the evolution of our culture has come, has been practical, and it's also been um, political because uh, it was in the face of adversity um, that grassroots uh, ritual came about to make sure that uh, we survived. Even gumbo, we got the scraps as slaves. Here, you get just whatever's left. And so all of these wonderful black women burned the flour in the bottom of a pan with a little oil and built a roux, that's the roux. And you build that stew, adding water and adding whatever you can get, the scraps of the table, and they, f from nothing, create this stew that is known around the world for its creativity and wonderful taste, gumbo, right? And so that's what gumbo, that's where gumbo comes from. That's where uh, a mix of everything. That's, that's the whole idea of the melting pot, which, which is so interesting. Out of these adverse situations, they've become the most... Uh, the most distinct uh, demonstration of the American aesthetic, out of many one, e pluribus unum, right? That from gumbo, from nothing, you get the scraps, something beautiful was made. But it happens in all cultures, just bouillabaisse, you know? You know, the fisherman's stew, which is like you got fish heads, what else are you going to do with it? Okay, uh, a couple of tomatoes, some onions, some garlic, butter, oh, this is nice. <laughs> Yeah. And talking of adverse conditions, mm -hmm. uh, Hurricane Katrina yes. decimated 
uh, your home, literally yes. your home as well. Yes. Um, and the work that you did personally post Hurricane uh, Katrina, mm-hmm. I've seen you speak passionately about justice for working class communities and black communities in, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. You even wrote a, a book about it, didn't mm-hmm. you? The Wind in the Reeds. The Wind in the Reeds, yes. Talk to me about the, uh, New Orleans post Katrina, immediately post Katrina. Well, you, you have to realize that uh, in all tragedies, Natural and man-made, and this was both. In New Orleans, it was man-made. Poor levees, poor levees designed. The the storm passed through, and we made it. And then the levees broke. And when the levees broke, um, you were reminded of 1927 when they actually blew the levees to make sure that they would destroy the Lower Ninth War, which was the, you know, African American. poor community to save the city, you know. Uh, they they blew the levees uh, in, in sections where, and that's why many people with Katrina started to believe that, you know, they did it again, you know, to save other parts of the city. But the whole city was so destroyed. You realize that in those times of tragedy, you will see the best of people and you will see the worst of people. Um, it was an opportunity for some to say, hey, listen, this is a way for us to get rid of the poor black population of the city. And since post, since Katrina, we lost almost 100,000 people, a third of the city, uh, and predominantly um, African-American. Uh, there was, uh, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, the old Dwyer, I think his name is, he said, this is, uh, this is gonna be the opportunity to get rid of the people we don't want. He literally said that in an interview. As he was having champagne and truffles, with no power in the city being flown into him. He lived across the street from Audubon Park, as if it would be the same as living across from Hyde Park in Mayfair. And uh, he had a private helicopter delivering him generators and fuel for his house and food and water so he didn't have to leave his house and that he can enjoy um, the chaos around him as he saw an opportunity to get rid of him. Uh, the one thing I learned in New Orleans, because it has been such a um, nexus of the civil rights movement, when bad people plot, good people plan. So I knew in all the efforts that were being made to destroy our neighborhoods, they had a green dot program. They put it on the front page of the neighborhood uh, of, of, of the newspaper. They put green dots, they put a map of the city and put green dots over areas that they said, there's no use to bring them back. So let them just go back to green space. And they just all happen to be black neighborhoods, right? And so with that, I said, as bad people plot, good people have to plan. That's a a legacy of A.P. Turo and... Avery Alexander and James Farmer and Reverend Abernathy and Hosea Williams, who I actually played in Selma, and of course the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Aretha Castle Haley. These are all local and national uh, civil rights leaders who left the blueprint, who showed us how to fight these battles on political fronts, on community fronts, on organizing fronts, on legal fronts. And when I saw that, I realized that they were of a part of a Moses generation. 
that laid the groundwork for this. AP Turo, in particular, in my neighborhood of Punchatrain Park, was fighting against the idea of Negro Day. We only have access to public parks as a black person only on Wednesdays. And he created, out of that advocacy, he created Punchatrain Park because to appease the movement, the mayor and the city leaders said, well, we'll do separate but equal. This was a white neighborhood that was developing post-World War II. They said, we'll put a barrier between it, which was this ditch that led to nowhere, um, like a DMZ zone. And then Punchatrain Park was created for African-Americans. It was the first place post-World War II where African-American could purchase a home because in most neighborhoods it was like no blacks allowed. Um, my father came back from fighting in Saipan and actually bought the house in the, in the 50s. And it started in 55. A thousand homes around a municipal golf course created by Joseph Bartholomew, who's a great landscape architect who designed all these courses in New Orleans but couldn't play on them because he was black. And so now here in Punchatrain Park, they created, it's that sort of advocacy. That's the world that I came out of. You know, culture and civil rights. Um, and my neighborhood was totally destroyed. So I put out a call to action, you know, as a member of that Joshua generation, we owed it to that Moses generation to not let this neighborhood not come back. So we built it back brick by brick, block by block, house by house, and we're back. I, we built about 40 homes, uh, some solar and geothermal, and um, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, uh, we put the rubber to the road and, uh, and saved our neighborhood. Yeah. It's amazing how you turn that justifiable anger mm -hmm. uh, at the powers that be into positive action. I mean, look at the Absolutely. inertia of the Bush regime during oh, that time. Absolutely, okay. and, 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 and it has to be a continuum. It has to be ongoing. Um, I would always tell people in the neighborhood as I put together community meetings, I said, you, the price to get up and speak and complain is that you have to have an idea to put on the table. So you can't just come and complain. You can't just come and get pissed off and say they need to do this and this and this and this and this. You must also come with a solution. Think of it. We can do it because, you know, my parents taught me can't die three days before the creation of the world. Don't ever tell me you can't do something. You know, that's my grandfather's so saying. Can't die three days before the creation of the world. Don't ever tell me you can't do something. And so uh, with that spirit, we uh, I kind of galvanized the neighborhood and tried and brought it back. Well, you did something else as well, which is you used your acting talents to perform in Waiting for Godot. Yes. On, on the actual site. Yes. Where you were rebuilding. Uh, why uh, that play and why did you do that? First of all, it was an idea of Paul Chan, who was a, an American artist uh, and activist. Um, and he went to the Lower Ninth Ward and he said it looked like every production of Waiting for Godot that he had ever seen. The void, the absolute destruction and void. That life was there, you could tell, but it was gone. New Orleans, after the flood, looked like a nuclear winter, you know. Everything was gone. And uh, along with uh, Creative Time, they uh, heard about a production I did in Harlem, the Classical Theater of Harlem. Uh, I did a production of Waiting for Godot right after Katrina. And we did it on stage, on a stage that was 15,000 gallons of water. You just saw a rooftop coming out of that and a hole. Those images were seen around the world of folks standing on rooftops with flags. 
And that's where, you know, you know, Dee uh, Dee and Gogo were waiting for Godot. So that image is of us standing in all of this flooded stage with this rooftop looking for Godot, waiting, was so emblematic of what was happening in New Orleans. Uh, we did not have to change a word. The state approved it, and uh, it was resonant. And because of that, they said, we want you to bring the production here. And that play speaks to the strength of the human spirit in the most dire circumstances, um, because it was written that way. Samuel Beckett was under Nazi occupation when he wrote that play. You know, um, is it was famous production done in Sarajevo by Susan Sontag. Uh, and then our production has been pointed out as um, a time that was, uh, that was very, very poignant. And people were invited, communities rich and poor from far and near came to the Lower Ninth Ward, which had no power, no lights, nothing. I made an entrance from two blocks away where thousands of people had died in this uh, city in this particular neighborhood hundreds and hundreds and I stood there and I remember the one of the most cathartic moments I ever had in my life where I turned to the audience filled with New Orleanians like myself all displaced of all races of all creeds of all um, economic status and I said all mankind is us let us do something while we have the chance at this place, in this moment of time, all mankind is us. And that just resonated because we realized if we don't do anything now, if we continue to wait for something outside of ourselves, this entity that never comes, uh, we will be in that void forever. So it really spoke to people. And today, to this day, I meet people every once in a while and say, I saw that production of Waiting for Godot. That was amazing. The other thing that's amazing about it, Kismet, is when I was younger, one of the one of the groups that really inspired me to be an actor is the Free Southern Theater. The Free Southern Theater was a, a theater company in New Orleans, based in New Orleans during the Civil Rights Movement. And they used to go out on the marches in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and perform plays. I started in 62, 63. Um, their first season, they did Waiting for Godot in the Mississippi Delta for all of these black sharecroppers in the middle of the fields, waiting for Godot. And at intermission, as the director was standing in the back, a farmer, elderly African-American man came up to him and said, uh, you, you got something to do with this play? Because yeah. He said, I'm the director. He goes, oh yeah. He said, let me tell you something. He ain't coming. <laughs> he said, what? He said, I've seen this a thousand times. I've seen it a thousand times. He ain't coming. <laughs> that Godot guy, he ain't gonna come. They wasting their time. I was just like, he was just like floored by that. So to have that group be a, a major inspiration yeah. for me. Incredible. And to be able to do it in New Orleans, yeah. that became a poignant. And it showed me the prophetic and the profound, impactful way that art can be. Yeah. Because what thoughts are to the individual, where we reflect on who we are, when you lie awake at night, Dan, and go, what do I want to do? Oh, this is where I fail, this is where I triumph. I need to be a better writer, I need to be a better man, I need to be a better uh, 
um, lover, I need to be a better everything. Um, when you have those individual thoughts, that's what theater is for the community as a whole, where we come together and collectively think about our past, our hopes for the futures, our triumphs, our failures, our strengths, our inadequacies. We ask what our values are, identify what is valuable in our values, and then act on them. Well, Hopefully move from there, that theater experience, and then do something. Well, one of your values seems to be um, a fight for justice, a fight for equality. And uh, I've seen you talk really eloquently about the reality of the situation for people of color in America. Mm -hmm. And I heard an anecdote from you about being pulled over in yes. a car on your way to a funeral with two young toddlers in the back of the car. Absolutely. Um, how important is it for white people like me to know the uncomfortable truth about the, the daily lives and the daily realities of, of, of the black community, both in the U.S. and also in, in the U.K.? Yeah, it is, um, it is imperative. It is imperative that everyone understand it. There's people in all communities. There's people in black communities around the world that try to deny it. There's, um, there's injustice that has happened. There's injustice that is baked into the pie. You know, the criminal justice system in the United States was created to, as, an, as, as a way to continue slavery, right? We're going to build a criminal justice system that ultimately where, because the one thing in the 13th Amendment it says every citizen has the right to, you know, the inalienable rights of the United States and its Constitution unless they commit a crime. There's a loophole in it, right? And with that loophole, they said, ah, so now we can criminalize it. The famous Joe, that's what Joe Turner's Come and Gone is all about by August Wilson, where they literally had Joe Turner would go around and just arrest black men. Once you get them arrested, then... You know, they are back in this penal system. And to this day in Angola, our penitentiary in Louisiana is a working plantation, is a working plantation. And any parish, which is our counties in Louisiana, you can call the local jail and get someone to come and cut your lawn for like a dollar an hour. So many corporations use the prison population for telecommunications, for building materials, and all that's baked into legislation that allows them to do that, that privatizes prisons. So what they do is fight against all education programs because the only way you make money if you're in the prison business is to have a criminal class. The only way you keep a criminal's class is to make sure that you don't have an educated class. So the prison lobby and legislators all around the United States spend most of their time not dealing with any legislation about prisons or, or, or legislations about criminality, really. They spend all of their time destroying any sort of legislation that would help the education system. They make sure, because that is their enemy. Destroy the education system so we can then have a criminal class. If you have no skills, they understand that ultimately those people are gonna make some wrong choices, right? Because they're not gonna have an opportunity. I am not an activist, right? By chance, all of this happens to you. You have to then express anecdotes, like the one I'm about to say, to get people to understand, to speak to their humanity, to have them understand it. You know, there's a schism even in our community. 
you know, in, in the diaspora of, of people of color. You know, there, there are folks from the Caribbean that come to the United States and folks from West Africa that come to the United States. And there's always, oh, man, hey, man, I'm West African. I'm not African-American. You know, why you say you're African-American? You're not even from Africa. I'm like, why, why are we fighting, right? In the Caribbean, hey, man, I'm from the Caribbean. I'm not American. And what it is, and I tell people all the time, I said, don't take the high road. I said, it's natural because colonialism and imperialism breeds, you know, crabs in the barrel, fight amongst the divide and conquer. And a part of that is if you came to the United States and you saw the, how they're treating African-Americans, you're going to go, man, that's the last people I want to associate with because I don't want to get my ass beat or shot by a cop. You see now on the Internet, thankfully, all of these different uh, uh, videos of how cops are shooting and killing unjustifiably and still getting away with it. You know, people are not even believing their lying eyes. Um, but this has been something going on in our community forever. And it happened to me, which is I was going to my uncle's funeral, and it was 100 degrees. It was Louisiana. The windows are up. The AC is on. The radio is playing. And I'm with my cousin and her two toddlers in the back, and I'm waiting for the cop who has pulled me over to come and get my license. And I make a habit of putting my wallet on the dash because I don't want any police officer thinking when I go to my back pocket, he has any reason to kill me because that always happens. How many black men have been killed? They said license and registration. Well, I thought, I thought he was going for a gun. You asked me for a license and registration. Or don't move. Give me your license. That's another one. I tell people all the time, man, look out for that. Because you also have to understand there are a lot of racist cops. They're looking for that opportunity. So, um, and I tell all my cop friends, because I played one on TV, uh, you know, um, I'm hardest on you the most because they're the ones that are going to define your profession. When are you going to speak up and say, hey, he doesn't represent who I am? You know, you don't just automatically get, you know, this, this you know, hero worship, even though they do. You know, you have to earn that, you know. And the way you earn that is you actually call out those one or two bad apples you claim are there. There are more than one or two. But, um, but another old trick by the cops is say, hey, you know, don't move. Hands up. Give me your license. So you're like, that's a contradictory thing. You know, I told you not to move. Um, I was stopped. I looked in my rearview mirror because it was taking him a while. And I just see this enraged police officer with his gun half drawn out of his holster. And I can't hear a word. I just, it's like a pantomime because the windows are up. The music is on a little low, but not loud. And, you know, the the air conditioner, and as I turned the window down, I hear, get out of the car, I've been telling you to get out of the car, and I said, everybody be cool, I put my hands up, I put my hand out of the door, and I opened, and he said, I would blow your fucking head off, excuse my language, this is a podcast, so it's you fine. chose it, um, and I realized how easily I could have been killed that day, and that happens, and then I saw the a video of Philando Castile, who had, in Minnesota, the right to carry a gun. He had a permit. 
the police pulled his girlfriend over. She's driving. But whenever you're a black male in a car, they want to know about you, which they don't have any right to. Um, and they asked him, and he said, let me see some ID from you. He goes, all right. My name is Philando Castillo. I'm going to get my ID, sir. But I want you to know that I have a permit to carry a gun. And, you know, so I'm carrying a gun. He let the police officer know. He said, wait, wait, you have a gun? He said, yes. So he draws his gun. You know, he goes, wait, wait, I just want to tell you, you know, so you can be calm. All right, cool. So now I'm going to get you my wallet, <laughs> right? And he goes for his wallet, and he's shot and killed. And uh, you can go online and actually see it because his girlfriend was smart enough to start filming, as all black folks in New Orleans, in uh, America should be doing now, and they happen to do it because because they see that's the protection that they have, or sometimes, and this is what the whole Black Lives Matter movement is all about. So, it is. Uh, I'm not an activist. I'm not dealing with justice. I'm dealing with my life. So, you choose to be in denial or you choose to fight against something that's going to be destructive to you. And I choose the latter. Um, and it's not, it's it's all of us, Dan. You know, it's happening to me, but, you know, it's an ugly part of human nature. If all black folks disappeared tomorrow, it'd be like, hey, Dan is brunette, you know. Okay. Okay, yeah, you know. So, you know. Mm. You already know. So, I mean, we're celebrating... Uh, just want to say Stonewall. I was right. Yeah, Stonewall. Mm. Stonewall, Good. right? Yes, this month. Yeah, yeah, this month. Stonewall, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a person of color that threw the first brick as well. So yeah. that's the intersectionality yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, a horrific crime that happened in New Orleans when I was a boy. The gay club in the French Quarter was firebombed. Something like 73. It was the worst uh, um, uh, uh, anti-gay crime uh, before uh, the Pulse nightclub. So it's... Martin Luther King said it the best. Injustice anywhere threatens justice everywhere. So that's what motivates me. Wendell, it was electrifying hearing you say that, but I found it surprising that you said you're not an activist because you um, campaigned for Barack Obama, didn't you? Yes. His, during his presidential I did more campaign. than that. I, I, I campaigned in the first, uh, the first run... And then I became uh, a um, a bundler, a fundraiser in the second one. I raised one point five million. Oh my gosh! Congratulations! Yeah, thank you. That sounds like activism to me. <laughs> what ha- I, I people try to use um, the reason I I say I'm not an activist is because I'm trying to normalize that behavior. Everyone should be that aware, so it should be something that is normal that does not need a distinction. You know, and so that's why I say I'm not an activist. Uh, I'm actually uh, practicing my citizenship. And working with Barack Obama must have been a really exciting time. That this was a change in okay. politics. Surely. Yes. Now this is the cruelest thing to do on a podcast. You Barack show me a picture. Uh, I'm going to show you even something better than that. Uh, Barack Obama for me was like Robert Kennedy for yeah. a pr- previous generation. He's someone who motivated me beyond anything I could think of. He was a person who 
you know, as we're going through these tough times politically now, he was what America aspires to be. And unfortunately, we have someone like uh, the present president who is a reminder of what America is and, and why you always have to be diligent and that the barbarians are always at the gate and that the biggest mistake we made um, in all of these ebbs and flows of times of real justice and real progress is that we always forget that we didn't reach a goal yet. We're on a continuum and we have to prepare to, uh, to be, for this to be a long, on, ongoing um, battle for equality and liberty and set up not only the momentum, but set up a, a structure where those generations after you will have the tools and the infrastructure necessary to battle those barbarians at the gates. Um, there's the African proverb, you know, the wise man is the man who plants a tree, understanding he will never know the shade of its branches. Right? That, 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 that tree that I'm planting is for the generations to come to sit under in its shade. But this is on the night, and what he is seeing now, ladies and gentlemen, is a night in the White House at about 4 a.m. I'll never, I'll never forget uh, sitting down. I was just like sitting down at one point, just looking around, and I, I just couldn't believe it. And this one guy walked up to me and goes, what the fuck are you doing? You better get your ass up. We waited 400 years for this. <laughs> and I was like, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, hopefully he will be coming to see the play. Oh, wow. Um, I just I just had as a guest, I just had as a guest, I know I'm chatty Cathy. <laughs> um, I just had as a guest Patrick Gaspard, who was his uh, political director. He just came last, uh, two weeks ago. And uh, so I said, hey, man, you got to get the boss to come. I said, we're being extended to the West End, so. Wendell, I've got so many things to talk to you and about. And I, I will be brief. You can <laughs> ask them all. I, well, and I've just been told that we've, I've got a very limited amount of your okay, time. Yes. And we've not even spoken about Death of a Salesman. Salesman, <laughs> yes, I know. So con firstly, congratulations. It's a truly fantastic production, and I'm Thank so you. delighted to have seen it. Thank you. Um, what is it about that role, about about playing Willie Loman, that attracted you to it? Uh, it is Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. It is uh, it is comparable to King Lear. It is comparable to it is the American Hamlet. It is a milestone um, that uh, that any actor, um, when asked to do, I would tell them to do it because it's the greatest challenge you'll ever have in in your career. It's one of the greatest challenges I've ever had and still having. And every night, um, when the lights go down right before we start, I feel like I'm at the base camp of Mount Everest looking up, and I have to climb it. And uh, I've never been challenged uh, um, physically, vocally. Um, well, you have to climb Mount Everest eight times a week. I know. I know. And uh, that's a real great challenge. And so I wanted that challenge. And uh, when asked to do it for an African-American, for a person of color, uh, it was rarity. Uh, it's uh, it actually a historic moment because uh, I, you know, didn't expect the moment to actually come. I've actually, you know, I was scared by it when the, when the opportunity came. But, you know, um, courage is not the absence of fear. It's uh, act in the face of fear. So 
I embraced it. Wendell, you visited London for the first time 40 years ago, and now here you are on the Young Vic stage. Is it special to make your London debut? To make my London debut is, in this play, is just a godsend. It is, um, uh, had we not hit the mark that we did, it would have still been one of the greatest moments of my life. Uh, and it is one of the greatest moments of my life, one of the greatest, it is the uh, highlight of my career and um, and uh, the great challenge that any artist uh, would love to have. Uh, and the fact that uh, we are now going to be able to move and go to the West End is just um, surreal to me. Uh, to make my West End debut uh, in this play, in this production, is just truly a blessing. It's a real blessing. Um, it's, it's the culmination of years of training and experience and all of that coming together, and still I've only scratched the surface of the role. Um, uh, it puts me in company of uh, the men, a, a small select group of men who have played it, you know, around the world and uh you know I'm sure there's thousands of them you know <laughs> it's, it's, it's like so many productions have been done but you feel like you're part of a very special club because you at least try to take a bite out of that apple of Willie Loman and are you able to turn off Willie Loman at the end of the night or or is he such a massive character you know you called him the American Hamlet mm -hmm. that uh, that he's always with you during your time in London this is yeah, this is the first time that I've ever really experienced that you know where um, I was, I, w I would recommend everyone playing this role because to, to have someone to bounce things off of, you know, because you are dealing with inadequacies within yourself. You start to look at those. You, you start from where you are as an artist. So you look at your own scars. Uh, are my best days behind me? Where have I failed? I've, I've been <laughs> you, you deal with that, you know. When <laughs> you come home at night and you go, "Wow, there's so many people I wish I could share this with," but I kind of burned bridges, didn't I? <laughs> you know. Um, uh, yeah. So it, it, it's it's uh, you have to be careful with it. So I would always I would always, the first thing I do when I come home is uh, um, is look at a comedy, look at a stand up routine. Just to laugh, to be able to laugh at life, and uh, um, uh, yeah, I'd look at some comedy, uh, and uh, I actually stayed away from the drink for a, for a while until just recently. I'd like I look forward to my pint after you know a, a long you know couple hours on the stage. So, <laughs> but I, I I avoided it for a long time because I didn't want to have that become a, a crutch or a problem or anything like that. Um, so. Have you sampled any British comedy? Uh, uh, not live, but okay. yes. Um, this is going to sound really strange. I actually, I can't think of the name of it. Afterlife? I think it's Afterlife. Ricky Gervais' new show. Oh, I don't know it. It's about suicide. Well, there you go, Death for Self. <laughs> and so I watched that. But <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, this is not what I should be watching. <laughs> but it actually is touching and funny too but I was like okay I was really happy it was only six episodes so I was like alright cool but then what I really what my indulgence was and I've seen like twice the whole series 
Peaky fucking blinders. <laughs> I discovered the by order the Peaky fucking blinders. <laughs> and I love Peaky Blinders, man. That is my show. Right. I've watched it yeah. twice yeah. now, all four seasons. Yeah. Not exactly a comedy, though, Wendell. No, but it's, oh, it's so inventive. And, oh, it's just, they, no, I watched it stand-up first. And then I watched Peaky Blinders. I thought it was, I thought it was unique. But, um, and I go and hear a lot of music. I go to Ronnie Scott's to hear jazz. I went to the Royal Albert Hall to see the Chinooke Orchestra, which happened to be doing uh, uh, electronica music. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's in Ro- Royal Albert Hall. That was kind of strange and different and fun. And uh, there's uh, the Tate Museum and Gallery and uh, uh, the Soames Home and Museum. So getting around. And went up to the RSC to... Uh, to see a memorial celebration of uh, Sis Berry, who was the famed voice teacher there. Fantastic. And so uh, it was great. I'm getting out and about. Well, Wendell, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to chat to you. I, I hope I didn't ruin it by just. It's been fantastic. On it's been and on really, and on. really brilliant. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. <laughs>